And I think it's really important because when you think about feeding everybody, and yes, we do use uh, poultry and beef, um, you have to look at it in a sustainability aspect too of just how much land and how much um, greenhouse gases that they're using. And then really think about, okay, how do we minimize that? How do we still feed everybody? And then that's when um, these alternative proteins come into play. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Learn how InnovaFeed's Helucia protein and oil for pets can unlock a more sustainable and performant future for pet foods at InnovaFeed.com forward slash Helucia. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition. Make one call, find it all. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, your partner for pet ingredients and services. ICC Animal Nutrition, adding value to nutrition. Trow Nutrition, the science of ingredients, nutrition, and blending. Chemin Nutrisurance is your pet food and rendering partner every step of the way. ProAmpac is changing the future of sustainable pet food packaging. Learn more at pets.proampac.com. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Well, welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast. I am here today, and we're going to talk about sustainability. Meredith, you, you're, you're our uh, expert guest of the day, and I'm very pleased to have you. I'd like you to just introduce yourself and tell, tell us uh, a little bit about your background and how you got to be interested in pet food science. All right. Well, thank you so much for um, having me on today. Uh, my background, where to begin? It's kind of a little extensive. Um, so I got my bachelor's at the University of Illinois um, around 2021. I completed it. And during that time, I was actually um, interested in equine reproduction. So I worked on the University of Illinois horse farm, worked with their standard breads, helped with um, stallion collections, looked at um, the semen longevity. I also helped with the reproduction aspects of just artificial insemination, things like that. And then I also um, was an undergraduate research assistant for Dr. Um, Kevin Klein, and we looked at um, semen motility in stallions. And then about my junior year, I uh, realized that I wanted to look further into nutrition, realized U of I didn't have an equine nutrition program, um, fell in love with Dr. Kelly Swanson's nutrition, um, animal nutrition courses, reached out to him, wanted to be in his lab, and he um, generously took me in as a non-thesis student for a uh, for graduate student. Um, and so there I had this mealworm project that I was working on, and I fell in love with alternative proteins um, and what that meant for the industry, what that meant for me as a researcher. So I really wanted to stay on and get my thesis and then eventually now become a PhD student and look farther into alternative proteins. 84 million times a day, pets eat meals with ingredients from Trow Nutrition. We bring together the science of ingredients, nutrition, and blending to unleash possibilities for pet food brands. 
Premixes are just the start. Turn to trial for higher inclusion ingredients too, like proteins and carbohydrates, and highly sensitive ingredients like probiotics. With our palatants and base blends, you can feel confident about what comes in our bags and goes in yours. Learn more at troutnutritionpets.com. No, that's good. Thank you. Start, starting with this whole idea, I, I think, you know, for the person who might be listening to this marathon, might be going, well, well, wait a minute. I, I thought, you know, pets, they, they pretty much always eat chicken or beef or pork. And, and you're talking about mealworms. I mean, this is a this is a long stretch. Can you tell us why that might be important, you know, for a pet, you know, someone feeding a pet? So... Uh... For my understanding is the world is going to be growing a population. We're going to keep getting animals and we're going to need to have a bunch of food to feed all these people and these animals. And right now our biggest issue is, are we going to run out and what does that look like? And are there other alternatives that we can use to help, um, I guess, add to uh, the nutrition or um, the diets for our pet foods. And that's when we started looking at um, insects, or I guess you can also say that there's fermentable um, plant proteins that people are looking at right now. Um, and then what that means in terms of pet foods. And I think it's really important because when you think about feeding everybody, and yes, we do use uh, poultry and beef, um, you have to look at it in a sustainability aspect, too, of just how much land and how much um, greenhouse gases that they're using. And then really think about, OK, how do we minimize that? How do we still feed everybody? And then that's when um, these alternative proteins come into play. Well, that makes sense. You know, on the one hand, the pet food industry has been really significant uh, in using the alternative products that people don't want to eat. So they are producing, you know, uh, beef and cattle, uh, chicken, many different uh, muscle protein sources or animal protein sources. And then a part of that protein is not used by people, but, but it's available for pet food because people don't want it. Um, yes. But this then is a supplement that's really probably uh, uniquely going to be used in pet food is that is that right so mm -hmm. this would be designed yes. and and the other thing that's so clear and I, I i know you're going to talk about it some but i'd like to kind of introduce it is that from a nutrition perspective the nutrients in the food are not based on the ingredients so if we have lysine if we have a digestible uh protein source we as humans are the pet it doesn't care if it's a chicken mm -hmm. lysine or a corn lysine or a meal lysine. It's the amino acid that matters. So, Meredith, I'm going to ask you, you know, you've been involved with this sustainable protein source for, for, for pets. And how does that get measured? What do you do to say, you know, it's acceptable, it's even good? What, what are the processes you follow? So basically, we to look at the protein quality, we first assess the indispensable amino acid uh, digestibilities. And so basically from there, um, we want obviously greater than 90, um, but greater than 80% is pretty good. So then we'll consider that um, a good um, protein quality ingredient. 
And then from there, just because we know that obviously amino acid um, digestibility is super important um, so that the host can utilize those amino acids once um, the protein is consumed. Um, we want to look at the digestible indispensable amino acid scores of that specific protein ingredient. So what that means for me is I'm looking at um, if all of the uh, indispensable amino acids exceed 100% um, for um, their scores, meaning that, let's say, lysine, for example, is under 100%. That's going to be the limiting. Well, what we need to know, yeah. can I interrupt you? What We need to know a little bit for the audience about the denominator. So 100% lysine is what, maybe 2%, 5% of the total yeah. uh, mealworm. Uh, what, what, is, what is that 100% um, So mean? basically that 100% is from the one gram of the protein that we're looking at. So if you look at the um, amino acid, in grams divided by the um, amino acid in that specific ingredient, you times it by 100, you're going to get the score. Meredith, you're using a, a, a standardized yes. profile um, to establish that mm -hmm. percentage, right? So you've got you, amino acid in grams is what you said, but but it's it's an amino acid. Say, for example, you desired a pet food uh, protein that was 5% lysine. If your mealworm was then over that 5%, then that would be over 100%. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. So so my question then is, okay, so you've got, that's an analytical analysis, right? Yes. So that's, a, that's done in, in, with an amino acid analyzer, pretty, pretty complicated machine. Uh, you're doing that at University of Illinois. Can you tell me about how that analysis works? So we actually send off our analysis to the University of uh, Missouri, and then we get that data back. And then from there, I look at the di uh, dispensable, indispensable amino acid scores from that uh, amino acid digestibility data. So, so you start out, do you start out with the sort of chemical score of the, of the yes. ingredient then? So you say, independent of digestibility, this looks like a pretty good ingredient. It's got all, maybe all over 100%. I want 2% lysine, I've got 2.5%. I want... 0.3% uh, tryptophan, I've got 0.35, it's all looking marvelous. But then your next question, as I understand it, is you're going to find out what is what does the animal get out of that? Because it could be there, but mm -hmm. not used, right? It could be not digested. So tell me how you do that digestibility. So basically, uh, when we look at the digestibility, we're going to um, take the amino acid in the test protein and we're going to look at the percent and then we're going to reference the same amino acid in that reference protein, if I'm understanding your question correctly. Well, the, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get us to talk together about establishing the value to the pet. Now, digestibility of amino acids is kind of a little mm -hmm. bit tricky, right? Because the microbiota can chew those proteins up and make the amino acids of their choice. And so if you use a, a sort of normal whole tract oh, digestibility, okay. which is great for nitrogen, because nitrogen is neither, neither created or destroyed in this whole event, but it's really kind of rotten for, you know, an oh, okay. indispensable amino acid, tryptophan, lysine, or whatever. What, what are you doing that says, okay, I know... 
that this is really being used by the pet, not kind of being recreated by the microbe here. I understand your question now. Okay, so we use cystectomized roosters. Ah, that, that's what I wanted to talk about. Yeah. So, so that's okay. a model, right? So we don't we don't do that surgery for pets and no. You know, we're just going to step aside. We're not we're not uh, doing any surgical procedure for pets, but we have these roosters. They live a very happy life, right? They're roosters. They're yes. doing very well. But but they have this function in life, which is they really model this. Why do they? Why why does that model work? What why do you use that model? So we remove the twin cecum in the rooster. So that mimics the fermentation of those microbes that are eating the protein. So we remove that. So essentially we're looking at the ileal digestibility, let's say of a dog or a cat. And then by removing those twin cecum, we can mimic that track. So that when, from the moment that the uh, rooster consumes that ingredient to the moment that it's excreted, we don't have any microbiota interference. Yes, that's really critical, isn't it? Because otherwise we could say, well, look, it looks like lysine, for example, is not being um, totally being like it's not that 80, 85 percent mm -hmm. we want. Maybe it's down 50, 60 percent. But we wouldn't know that in a dog because maybe those microbes are saying, look, I got all the alanine, this dispensable amino acid. Well, and I think I should make some lysine. And then the, the lysine is, is you know, we, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know if the pet was using it or not. So this is a method to say, okay, we've got not only the nitrogen being absorbed, but we've got the specific amino acids of concern that we're really interested in absorbing. Mm -hmm. that, yes, that's correct. Sense? <laughs> yes, correct. You know, mealworms. What is it about mealworms that brought that into the space versus maybe cricket meal or whatever other alternative protein source might be interesting? Was there a company that came to you or was that your source? Tell, tell me about that. Um, usually a company will um, sponsor one of our studies in the lab. And for this sake, um, the company from Europe came to my lab um, and asked us to look at these mealworms specifically. We've looked at black soldier fly in the past um, based on another sponsor's request. But yeah, so it pretty much just depends on um, the sponsor's needs and what they want us to look at. So, so this is a good industry uh, and academic partnership, right? So we see a need. It's a valuable need for pets, valuable for the sustainability of our environment. These are good things. And so connecting together, um, they came came to the University of Illinois into your space and said, we'd like to do this analysis. Now, you completed the analysis. Sounds like you did this, uh, this assay with the roosters to say that it was digestible. Um, did you do anything with, with dogs and cats? I didn't personally know. Um, I know that there are recent article that just came out. They did a six month long study with uh, dogs um, to test for the um, total track macronutrient digestibility. Um, and also it used to look at safety measures while using this ingredient in a diet. But no, unfortunately, I did not get to work with dogs. With this. No, I understand. The, the thing that interests me is that, you know, there there's so many steps in bringing this idea into fruition. So the first idea is, okay, there's there's an ingredient supplier, they've got an ingredient of interest, they come to the university, you do some testing, but you still can't actually put that in pet food, right? So, so mm -hmm. tell me about this whole AFCO umbrella that, that recently was, uh, boy, um, maybe hurdle. <laughs> it's not really a hurdle because they're protecting pets too, but it's something that you have to get over. Can you tell me about how that worked? There's a recent meeting, I think. 
Um, so in regards to the use of mealworms in the, in the dog food, you mean? Okay. Yes, yes. So, yeah. So they have to undergo the six month long study that I just had mentioned to make sure that all of um, the dogs remain healthy in the um, study. Um, I don't know specifically if they did look at digestibility, but that would have been a great measure to see um, how much of that ingredient is being utilized um, for, for the amino acids. Um, but yes, it's a giant hurdle to... <laughs> to jump over. Um, there is a lot of um, compliance that you have to work with, specifically with the FDA, um, making sure that it gets generally recognized as safe or grass approved first. Um, and then the AFCO can come in and then um, look at the regulatory statements and then make their definition and uh, approve it for use in pet food. So there is a lot of moving components surrounding um, whether or not the ingredient gets approved. Well, and the good thing is that protects the pet, right? So that this mm -hmm. is done so that if someone uses an ingredient, there's a, a, a well-standard scientific background to say this is safe, efficacious for, for, for a particular purpose. In your case, meeting the protein requirement of, of the pet. Um, seems like, you know, you sort of declare success and go home. Is there, is there anything left with the mealworm thing that you'd be interested in or, or is it complete? Um, I believe that I might be getting um, some, I guess, different formulation of the ingredient, like whether or not it's in a slurry, um, whether or not it's process processing differences and looking at if that has an impact on um, the nutrient um, digestibility, overall protein quality. Um, so that might be in the near future, but for me, I'm moving towards um, looking at fermented plant products. And um, so unfortunately, we'll see. It's up in the air. Yeah, no, I understand. And I guess what I'm thinking is I would like the audience to hear, and, and it's just here, that secondary thing is that now it is an acceptable, approved, and safe ingredient to use. However, that, mm -hmm. there's really a lot to know about ingredients. And I love your, your statement of processing because, you know, my experience has been it's not always just what's in the food, but how it's made that matters. So that's really a, a good next step. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the world lives on soybeans and, and pets can do very well in soybeans. Some of the things, of course, we know about fermentation is some of the anti-digestive uh, uh, components of soybeans can be removed by fermentation or, as you know, by processing in other ways. But you're, you're interested in looking at a, a fermented soybean product. And, and tell us again just what you're going to do with that to, to evaluate uh, value for pets. So I'm just going to look at the protein quality and the amino acid digestibility of that ingredient. So when you do that... Um, you, you sort of don't get the opportunity to the broader spectrum. Nutrition, you're going to get a PhD in nutrition, not in digestibility. Yes. yes. Um, and so what would you recommend? Maybe it's not you who are doing it, but what would you recommend maybe if, if you beat the hurdles, right? You've said we've got these standards. We want to be above 80%. My guess is this product is going to be above 90%. It's going to be very digestible. But um, you beat those hurdles. Say, okay, here's the next step. What would you do? What would you recommend to evaluate this ingredient? I would recommend putting it into a diet, whether that probably an extruded kibble diet. And then from there, look at the um, mac, um, 
the parent-total tract digestibility of that diet with that ingredient included in it. And then compare that specific diet to, let's say, commercial um, chicken and rice diet to see how that compares. So you'd be interested in the protein digestibility of those two things. You'd probably be taking the chicken out and putting the soybean, fermented yes. soybean ingredient in. What else would you look at, though? Again, I'm, I'm interested in thinking aloud with you about this, you know, this whole body effect. You talked about maybe a probiotic in there. Uh, Dr. Swanson's lab is very involved with many things that that, that would uh, would touch this. What would you, what would you, you you're in the lab, you're, you've got the free scope. What would you do? Um, look, in terms of probiotic? I mean, you said that this ingredient was going to have a probiotic in it, if I understood. There was a yes. fermented soybean, and then a, they were adding a probiotic, and you'd like to know the value of this. Probably not going to see it in your customized rooster. Did I say that correctly? Yes. Uh, yes. The probiotic doesn't have a chance, right? It's just it's a non-microbial uh, assay. So you want, to, you, you want to test that now. What would you yes. do? So I would look at, um, again, I would put it into a diet. I would feed it to dogs for an extensive period amount of time, probably like four months. Um, and then I would probably have those dogs go under some sort of stress to then see if that probiotic has an effect on the immune response of those mm -hmm. animals. And then look at the microbiota from there and then see if there is a shift um, depending on animals that are on a placebo effect versus the probiotic and how well that immune system um, played an effect on those animals. And then I would also, again, look at the cortisol levels um, just to see like how much stress they then on, endured from the transport um, and then probably make a conclusion as to whether or not that probiotic was helpful in um, those hosts or not. So it's fascinating, you know, I think one thing that we've seen in pet nutrition, and really this is a biology, but this microbe immune response interaction has been fascinating. What do you think some uh, measures, what would you do to measure immune response, or maybe even to try and look at that crosstalk? You talked about cortisol, this is a this is a hormone that, that sort of reflects stress in the pet, but but what other things might you look for the crosstalk for how those microbes and how that pet and the immune response, the, the host, if you will, is, is responding to those changes in the gut? Yeah, so I would also look at um, cytokines and chemokines um, in the host. We're doing ELISA. Um, we draw blood. We then get the serum from that blood, and we run ELISA analysis to look at all of those cells and how they're interacting um, or like their levels within the blood. And that would give us a good indication of whether or not um, their immune system is functioning like properly or if anything at an optimal rate, um, depending on if they had undergone stress or not. So one of the things that interests me and you, you talked about this, this ELISA technology, this is, you wanna just tell us a little bit what that stands for and, and, and how you might use it in this it, there, there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of things influencing the immune system. So you're, you're touching on this spectrum of things. How are you? How, how, how would you? How would you take this, this to that step of saying, "Wow, I'm seeing this whole body effect uh, for, for the pets." So, right now, because my research is solely focused on protein and I haven't really jumped into using or working with ELISA's yet, I can't really speak to exactly what it stands for and like 
all of the breakdown components of it because I haven't run um, the um, the process myself yet. Sure. Sure, that's okay. Well, I was just—I guess I was thinking aloud, and 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 it's a great thing about this podcast. We can just we can just think aloud together. The thing that fascinates me is this. So, LIDA stands for enzyme-linked immune sorbent assay, right? So, so, so it's it's a way to these things are very low concentration in the blood, and it's a way of amplifying that, and, and you get a much better uh, analysis than you could do if you're trying to run it on a on a you know size exclusion chromatography or something is going to fail. Um, the thing that I'm fascinated with, and I just hope you can, you can tell us a little bit more as, as you think about your career in, in pet food, is that digestibility is a standard and functionally wildly important. It will get your ingredient of interest uh, a long way down that you want to use it. But in the end, if I'm a nutritionist, they putting it in a pet food, I've got this spectrum of protein sources. I, I'm mm. really pleased with chicken. I really like soybean uh, with, in the context of a whole nutrition. I wouldn't want a, a canine or a feline food that was only protein source with soy. But, but you have to work it together so that we have what we call complementation. And I'm just, I'm just trying to get you to think with me about how that complementation could be measured to the benefit of the pet. Um, so we've talked about immune system. Um, you've talked about inflammation with the cytokines because you have these pro-inflammatory cytokines. Um, we do a lot with with ingredient evaluation. Any other thoughts on that? What would you, you know, as you see your career going forward, what would you be interested in? Do you want to focus really on 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 digestibility and and uh, those foundational measurements, or would you like to see so uh, a breadth? Further than that. So I do look at the microbiota on um, like looking at like obviously digestibility, but then looking at the microbiota um, and like looking at DNA when we um, extract sample, well, take samples from our pets um, and then seeing exactly which type of diets or diet formats, like different processing methods have an influence on our gut microbiota for dogs. And depending on what they're fed or like, let's say, yeah, like the different formats, if you're looking at a fresh pet food, frozen raw diet versus an extruded kibble, and what, how does that play an effect to the bacteria that's in our gut, and then what bacteria is um, more pronounced? And for example, I've done a study in the past where I looked at um, raw-based meat diets um, as compared to um, a raw um, like a red uh, meat diet extruded kibble and and saw um, results saying that there's more proteolytic bacteria that's infesting in the gut when you're eating a raw based diet. And what exactly does that mean for the pet? Um, is it sustainable for the pet if it's being fed for a long period of time? I know that proteolytic bacteria cause a lot of fermentation in the gut, um, which can also cause blow, which is not super um exciting or comfortable for the host, um, things like that. I really want to dive into understanding a little bit more about what specific bacteria does, um, how we can influence that. Um, does it make a difference when we change diets frequently with like, for example, all these new um, pet food companies are coming out with feed your pet um, chicken and rice one day, feed your pet beef and rice, feed your pet um, fresh diet, and then seeing how that influences. I think that's where the um, 
industry is going. And I think it would be really interesting to see how that impacts the gut. Yeah, thank you. I think that will be interesting too. A good, a good space for probably a lot of uh, nutritional expertise and, and evaluation to come. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I, I always like to ask people, Meredith, and I, I hope you would sort of think about together as you look at Dr. Swanson has done so well with creating an environment for successful teams. And, yes. you know, you can observe that. It's just true. What do you see in that from your perspective that maybe has made those teams successful? What's what's the ingredients that drew, drew you in and that made, uh, made it seem valuable? I would say the passion from my teammates in the lab and just like, The communication, communication is so important when you're on a team. Um, You will have to be able to obviously communicate what's going on. If you have any questions, people are always there to help. That's super important, especially when we're all, we're doing research, we're trying to figure it out. We're trying to um, hopefully get good results. So it's good to like collaborate and bounce off your team, um, see what they have any input. I would say, again, yeah, passion, being driven, being organized. Organization is huge um, in terms of, obviously, because we're graduate students, we have to take classes and stuff like that. But um, being organized, um, having a plan, and just overall, yeah, being a good team member, I would say. Okay. Well, that's pretty exciting. Sounds like an exciting place to be. Yeah, it is. What do you see as you see sort of kind of maybe your thoughts in the, in the just because I'm interested, maybe someone watching will be interested too. Do you, is there a good chance that you can be in your area when you graduate? What, what's your career, you know, sort of goals and aspirations? Um, I would say, so I'm going to be preliming, hopefully. So I'm still in the thick of all of my PhD work, but I'm hopefully going to be preliming and finishing uh, my PhD in 2025. And based off in Champaign right now, I'm from the northwest suburbs of Chicago, um, grew up there. But I have a, like a broadened horizon, I guess. I don't want to limit myself. I really do uh, want to be involved with alternative protein still. Um, when I go to conferences and I meet other um, companies, it's super interesting to see what they're working on. They're innovators. It's really exciting for me. Um, and just... I guess being open-minded, I also do really like um, diet formulation. So we'll see like where that takes me. Okay. Well, thank you. I, I've enjoyed having this chat. So why, why don't you summarize for the audience, if you will, your, your experience to date with this idea that maybe there are ingredients out there that we're not using fully and, and how they might benefit pet nutrition. To basically summarize everything, um, There are a lot of new and up and coming um, alternative protein ingredients. It's really important to focus on the protein quality, looking at the digestibility and then putting them into a diet. And then to be open-minded also as a consumer or person buying this pet food to maybe um, be open-minded to having insects included in um, your pet's food uh, or soybean or just have it be plant-based in general. There is, but I would stress that it's like super important to just overall make sure that your pet is getting its optimal nutrition that it needs. 
Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, I've enjoyed chatting. I, I, I wish you good success as you go through your program. Well, the, I think you've seen a, a, just a great success in your first uh, AFCO-approved ingredient that now is, is really widely available for pet nutritionists to, to enhance their foods and use compatibility to, to use that ingredient with other ingredients to reach that optimum nutrition you've spoken of. So pretty exciting. Thanks for being with the Pet Food Science uh, podcast today. And I've sure enjoyed getting to know you a little bit and hearing about your exciting research. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.